What's up, everyone? Thank you for joining me on another episode of Guy Talk. This is a podcast for both guys and girls where we look to discuss all things nutrition, health, training, and lifestyle to hopefully provide you with the tools and insights necessary which will lead to a stronger, healthier, happier you. What's happening, guys? Welcome back to episode two of Guy Talk. Uh, on this week's episode, we're going to be working through some FAQs or just some topics that um, people have quite a few concerns with or some things that people ask me uh, quite often through in-person um, Instagram messages, uh, through email, whatever it may be. So just to touch on that, uh, if there's any questions that you have, feel free to send them through. You can do that through DMs, contact me, ask me in person. Um, I'm always happy to answer them, whether it's straight up or uh, if it's going to be on my next episode. Okay, to kick this week off, we're going to be talking about carbohydrates to start with. Uh, there's going to be plenty of questions answered within this topic, so I'm not going to have any question in particular. Um, but this is one of the main macronutrients that a lot of people have a concern with. Um, they have a concern with carbohydrates or, or sugar. And often when people are saying that they don't want to put carbohydrates or they don't want to consume too, too much sugar, it's more of an uneducated comment um, based off them not knowing or not understanding how carbohydrates, how sugars actually work within the body. So generally, when people say they're trying to avoid sugar or trying to avoid carbohydrates, they're not avoiding that macronutrient or that, that, that sole macronutrient. They're trying to avoid the foods, like highly palatable foods such as chocolate, pizza, burgers or, or even ice cream, where majority of the calories within that food are actually coming from the fats and not actually coming from the carbohydrates or they're, they're, they're quite equal in, in calories. For example, Ben & Jerry's chocolate ice cream. Uh, in one whole tub of ice cream, there's going to be 121 grams of carbohydrates, uh, but there's only 53 grams of fat. But from a calorie perspective, there's only two calorie difference. So there's 484 grams coming from carbs, and there's 482 grams coming from fats. So when people are saying that carbohydrates are causing them to gain weight, well then, are you really sure of that, or is it just because you're consuming too many calories. So before we go any further, I probably need to explain a little bit further on what carbohydrates actually are and how they actually work within the body. Uh, they are basically sugars and starches found in all sorts of foods. Um, so from your potato to your apples to your broccoli to the sugar that you put in your coffee every day. So regardless of how we actually get these sugars or how we actually get these carbohydrates from our diet, they're all broken down in the body or in the stomach in the same way. Uh, they're broken down into a sugar called glucose, which gets pushed out into the body or into the bloodstream. Uh, when this happens, uh, our, our pancreas releases a uh, hormone called insulin, and this insulin prevents our blood sugar levels from getting too high and also acts as, let's think of it as like a, a shuttle bus of transporting this glucose that's floating around in our bloodstream into our 
uh, liver cells or into our muscle cells, which we can now store as energy. Which brings us to our next point of why people are actually afraid of consuming carbohydrates is there is some belief that when insulin is present, um, we stop oxidizing fat or stop burning our fat. Um, but instead, it's, it's due to glucose being present. And once we burn through this, we then go back to burning through our fat stores or through our stored energy, which, is, which can be stored in our muscle cells. And it doesn't have to happen straight away. Um, it can happen as long as we're in a caloric deficit and we're burning it throughout the day. So some people may even say that they weigh more or they put on weight once they eat carbohydrates or they had a day prior eating more carbohydrates. Uh, and this is simply due to the stored glycogen, as I spoke about before. Um, so for every gram that, for every gram of glycogen or muscle glycogen we store, so the glucose gets stored as muscle glycogen, um, we also store, along with that, three to four grams of water. So I now know that everyone's thinking, oh no, water retention. But it's not the water retention that you're thinking. It, it's not like bloating or something like that. It's actual just water that fills the muscle and allows the muscle to push against the skin harder. So try to think about um, bodybuilders. They will deplete, um, or most will deplete, uh, carbohydrates or muscle glycogen leading into a competition. And then the night before or the morning of, they will now start consuming more carbohydrates and start trying to um, replenish those uh, muscle glycogen stores, which will now give the image of the muscle pushing harder against the skin. So this is one reason why we can't really use the scales as a representation of fat loss. Um, simply due to if we had more carbohydrates the day before, maybe we had lower fat, more carbohydrate, that we weigh, may weigh more due to storing more muscle glycogen and storing more water. So when will carbohydrates or when will sugars uh, cause weight gain or, or fat gain? And it's only going to be due to when we are overfeeding or consuming too many calories on a, on a, on a weekly basis. So the actual conversion of carbohydrate or sugar to fat is quite a complicated and energy expensive process within the body. So if we are over consuming carbohydrate, it's probably likely that we are over consuming fats along with that, which is going to put us in that caloric surplus. But what's being stored is more likely to fat than the carbohydrate as the fat does not go, need to go through any conversion process to be stored as fat. Another reason why people are probably so afraid or quite hesitant to, to eat carbohydrates or sugar is due to the rise of the ketogenic diet. Um, and this diet or a similar diet will come around every 10 years or so um, to where it's either keto and that's full-blown almost no carbohydrates or very, very limited um, or just be a very low carbohydrate diet. It depends how they want to call it or what, however they want to name it. Um, and there's actually been a few studies on this. So they've actually tried to test if uh, reducing carbohydrate, eliminating car carbohydrate led to greater, um, greater fat loss than reducing dietary fat. And they, even though it was, this, this study was funded by a high-fat, low-carbohydrate um, advocate, um, he funded the study 
And so generally when there's a, a, a study funded by someone, it's there's often often a little bit of a bias. So they're trying to bias the results towards what they're trying to prove. So obviously this guy was trying to prove that higher fat, lower carbohydrate was going to burn more body fat. But the guys that, they, that he hired to perform this study could not come up with a conclusive um, conclusive evidence to say that reducing uh, carbohydrate led to any greater fat loss. So it was actually the same in, in, in both groups. So same being said for sugar. Um, this was a six-week study where there was two groups. Uh, both groups ate 1,100 calories per day. Um, one group was fed a high-sugar diet of... Um, 118 grams and another group was fed a low sugar diet of only 11 grams uh, over the six-week period there was equal reductions in body fat and any metabolic changes um, so once again there was no conclusive evidence that in a hypocaloric state so that meaning caloric deficit um, that there was any greater fat loss between the group that consumed low sugar and a group that consumed high sugar so all that really matters when it comes down to fat loss or, or weight loss is that you are consuming a or you're you're in a caloric deficit over the duration of the week so when it comes to carbohydrates guys there's there's absolutely nothing to fear right so you got you got to think of it like there, there's there's civilizations throughout the world that or there's populations throughout the world um where majority of their diet is coming from carbohydrate, 70% of their diet is going to be coming from carbohydrate. But these 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 um, populations, they're actually leaner than some. There's no obesity. They're actually leaner than the majority of the of the world. So you you need to think that you you're you're probably not the outlier. Um, carbohydrates aren't the reason that you are putting on the weight. Carbohydrates aren't the reason why you're not losing the weight, uh, and nor is sugar. Uh, from a health perspective, probably having a high sugar diet isn't the best, right? There's definitely better sources of, of food out there, better source of carbohydrates out there other than, other than just simple sugars. Um, so from a health perspective, trying to aim for the foods that are going to be higher in vitamins and nutrients, so your fruits, vegetables, that type of thing. Um, but from a macronutrient or, or from a weight loss or fat loss perspective, that it doesn't, it, it doesn't really matter where you're sourcing your carbohydrates from. Okay, so now moving on to our second topic or our second question. Um, how many calories do I need to eat? So this question is pretty, pretty broad, right? It, it's all going to depend on what your, what your goal is. So... The common goals are either going to be performance, it's going to be health-related, or it's going to be fat loss or body composition improvement. So we've all, we've all heard the person who eats 1,200 calories a day, um, or we might be this person who, who says they, they eat 1,200 calories per day, and they don't see any results, they don't see any weight loss. Uh, the thing is here, it's probably likely that you're not actually eating 1,200 calories a day or over the course of the week, so let's say... Um, over seven days, you're claiming that you only ate 8,400 calories for the course of the week. Um, but maybe you're eating 1,200 for the five days um, and then 
over the weekend, so Saturday, Sunday, you're now consuming 3,000 calories each day. And while it seems like quite a big um, jump in calories, it's, it's not uncommon for this to happen. So rather than being in that um, calorie deficit of 8,400 for, for the seven days of the week, uh, we're now in a caloric surplus of, of around 12,000 calories per week. So this is a caloric difference of around 3,600, right? So this is likely what's pulling you out of that caloric deficit, just those two days of overfeeding. And just to touch on that, I've never actually experienced anyone that actually does eat such little calories every single day unless you're, unless it's someone that's prepping for a show and they're in their final uh, week or two of prep. Um, but just for the gen pop, no one's actually consuming 1,200 calories per day every single day. It's, it's just not happening. Or if it is, they're likely to be seeing weight loss or they're likely to be seeing results thereafter. And if you're not, it's likely that you're doing something wrong or there's some error in your tracking or um, there's some error in how many calories that you claim to be eating. So there's a few reasons why this can be happening. Uh, there's variance in food. Okay, so just because you enter in MyFitnessPal that you've ate an apple and it, can, and it contained 150 calories doesn't mean that apple actually contained 150 calories, okay? Not every single food is going to be identical in the actual macronutrients or calories within that food. So let's use steak, for example. Not every single, gra not every single piece of fat is going to contain 30 grams of fat, okay? Animals are going to have different eating habits. They're going to be higher fat, lower fat, whatever it may be. What they are is actually just averages um, on that food item. There's also um, rounding on that nutrition label uh, of the foods that you eat. So there's up to a 20% variance in these foods. So if there's 50 or fewer calories per serving, we round that down to the nearest five increments. So if there's 42 calories, it then becomes 40 calories um, on your My Fitness Power on that food label. Um, if there's 50 calories or more per serving, uh, we round it to the nearest 10 increment. So if it's 106, it now becomes 110. And whilst this may not mean too much if it's just a single food, just think that we eat 5, 10, 15, 20 different foods throughout the day. Um, these are going to add up, okay? And over the course of seven days or over the course of the week, it's going to add up even more. So these are going to be calories that we do not uh, account for um, in our day that can cause a lot of variance. This is just one little thing though. That we don't need to really stress about that too much. As long as, long as, as, long as we're consistent with the, the foods we are eating throughout the course of the week, we shouldn't have too much of a problem. Um, but this is also why I prefer to track macronutrients. I prefer to get my uh, clients to track macronutrients. As, as long as you're working towards your macronutrients, well then the calories are going to work out. If you're only working towards calories, well then going to be low on our macronutrients that we may be aiming for. Another thing that we may be uh, doing that's hindering our results is under-reporting. So uh, under-reporting how much food we actually are eating. And this can be through incorrect measurements. So we're not actually using a scales to measure our food. We're using cups or we're using spoons or whatever. So... Um, if you're quite hungry, obviously that cup of oats or the spoon of peanut butter is going to be a lot, a lot higher and less level than what it would be if you were less hungry or, or tracking to the gram. And once again, 
the once off isn't going to be that big of a deal but over the course of a week these calories are going to add up and lead to extra calories consumed but let's get back to the original question of how many calories do i need to eat in order to lose weight or how many calories do i need to eat in a fat loss setting so what's going to determine this is your energy expenditure and now this is something that's quite difficult to measure um, and that's due to it's changing on a daily basis it's changing on an hourly basis right um and the reason for this is something called NEAT, okay? So that's non-exercise activity thermogenesis. And these are things that we do that burn energy or burn calories that aren't direct exercise. So things like standing, holding a posture, blinking, fidgeting, typing, talking, all these things are considered our NEAT, right? Um, and if you diet or you've been in quite a, quite a low calorie diet or a diet for an extended period of time, you're going to notice that these things slow down. So when there's less energy uh, for the body, well, then we're going to be putting less energy out. Another thing that can have an impact on our energy expenditure is TEF, or thermic effect of food. Now, this just means the amount of energy that's required by the body to break down this food for more energy. So protein and fiber require more energy than carbohydrates or fats. And lastly, there is our activity levels. So this will include uh, the line of work that we do. So are we quite sedentary um, or work an office job or are we highly active like a carpenter um, that's on their feet out, outside all day? Um, and this will also include our training, which is what type of training do you do? Is it something like CrossFit where it's very high intensity? Are you continuously working for that hour or you only work for 15 minutes? Or are you in the gym... Um, lifting weights for the full 60 minutes versus on the bike for 20 minutes and then you're only lifting weights for 15 minutes. There's going to be some difference in the actual energy we burn. And once again, it's likely we're not doing the same exercise every single day. Therefore, we're probably burning less calories or more calories from day to day. So there is one thing that we can, can measure and that's going to be energy intake. Um, and this will be inaccurate to some degree. Um, but I do believe that tracking your energy intake is better than not tracking your energy intake. So by energy intake, I mean how many calories you're putting in or how much food you're putting into your body on a daily or weekly basis. So if we're, if we're tracking our food or measuring our intake, um, how much should we be measuring to? How much, how much should we, we be eating? And there are a few calculators, there are a few formulas out there that we can use. And one of the ones I use with, with my clients is body weight in kilos, and we times that by 24, um, and then we times that again by an activity multiplier, right? So this multiplier, activity multiplier, is going to include your exercise and also the line of work that you do. So are you highly active or are you quite sedentary? Um, so if you, are, if you are on the quite sedentary and not very active in the gym, edge towards the 1.2 to the 1.3. Um, if you're got a you're not very active at work, but you're, you're in the gym five, six days a week and it's just a one-hour session or something, something like that, maybe edging towards a 1.4, 1.5 or somewhere. Um, highly active, um, highly active job, training six, seven days a week, but you're probably going to be likely working more towards that 1.8 plus, okay? So these are only estimates and we do need to tweak things, add things, add calories in here and there or take them away based off how we are responding to the end calculation or 
and end result. So for example, let's take a 65 kilo female office job uh, that trains CrossFit five days per week and she trains for about an hour, 1.5 hours per day. So 65 kilos and we're going to times that by 24 and that's going to end up at 1,560. Um, I'm going to give her the multiplier of 1.4, which means it'll put her maintenance level at 2,184 calories. So from there, if she wanted to lose weight, let's say we'd put her in a 15 up to a 20% deficit, um, which would be around three to 400 calories. So what would that be? That would be about 1,700 calories or almost 1,800 calories in order to see some result in, in weight loss. Uh, if she wasn't losing weight, would it probably means that she's not in a caloric deficit or she's not tracking correctly and we need to address whatever is going on. Um, if she, let's say for a guy, if they're looking um, to add some muscle mass, well then we need to put them into a surplus. Um, so that would mean taking their maintenance and then adding calories on top of that. So if working out your activity multiplier is a little bit too difficult and you want something a little bit more simple, um, there is one method that I learned recently and that was through Martin McDonald um, and he separates the two. So he'll separate the female and he also separate the male um, calculation. So male calculations are body weight in kilos and we're going to times that by 24 and then we're going to times that again by 1.1 up to 1.7 plus. Okay, so this does not include um, your exercise. This is just your base metabolic rate. So if you're looking to lose weight, you're going to edge more towards that 1.1 up to the 1.3. If you're looking at maintaining or gaining weight, you're going to be working more towards that 1.6, 1.7 plus, okay? Um, the women's calculation will be body weight in kilos, and we're going to times that by 22 times, once again, 1.1 or 1.7 plus, depending on your goal. So we want to error on the side of caution here. Um, if you're looking at fat loss, we're going to edge more towards that 1.1. Um, and if you're looking at gaining, well, then we're going to edge a little bit higher. Just to add to this, that, that's, your, that's your calories and we want to work out our uh, macronutrients from there, but that, that's another conversation. Um, but there, there is no magic ratio. There's no magic split in order to lose weight. It just comes down to the calories. I use macronutrient goals because it provides people with a target um, and it's something to work towards each day um, and it will reduce that variance in the, um, in the calories at the end of the day. Um, but there is no, we don't need to eat a certain amount of carbs, we don't need to eat a certain amount of fats in order to see more results. And the most important factor when it comes to weight loss is our energy balance or, our, or our calories in versus calories out. And at the end of the day, we want to try and find an approach that is going to be most sustainable for us, okay? So rather than restricting yourself too much, which can lead to an increase in binge eating, increase in, um, in cravings, that type of thing, aim to eat the least amount of calories that you can or the least amount of calories that you can sustain whilst maintaining a reasonable amount of energy and also trying to focus on increasing your training, increasing your training intensity, maybe a little bit extra volume, um, or maybe just make sure that you're working for the full amount of time that you're there. So this basically means that you'll be able to eat a little bit more food, train a little bit harder, train a little bit more, and still see the results that you're wanting. So I want to try and use a little bit of an analogy. Um, let's try and look at nutrition 
sort of like training, okay? Because training is a little bit of an easier concept for people to understand. Um, if you were to bust your ass every single day in a gym, seven days a week, how long could you actually maintain? How long could you actually sustain that effort? And I'm gonna say not very long at all. That means if you, whatever you're able to sustain, those results are gonna be very minimal um, within that period. So if you can only sustain it for six to eight weeks, when you only have six to eight weeks of results. But if you were to drop that, pull that back a little bit, pull that intensity back a little bit to uh, maybe five days a week, give yourself that two days of rest, you can still go hard in the gym, maybe not killing yourself every single session, um, but push it out over a three to six, up to a 12 month period, the results are gonna be a lot better and much more likely to happen because you're gonna avoid that burnout, okay? So just like dieting, if you were to push yourself for the eight weeks as hard as you can, um, reduce your calories all the way back, by about week three to four, you're gonna be fucked, you're gonna have no energy, you're gonna be starving, your cravings gonna be up, and the results are gonna be less likely to be achieved due to these factors. Now, I'm not saying that aggressive dieting isn't a, a great tool to use, so following a very low calorie diet for four up to a six week period, that can be very useful at times, but after that six weeks is generally where we see people drop off. So if we're trying to hold these calories for too low, uh, for too long, there's no end, there's no end in sight. People are gonna, their adherence and their sustainability is gonna, is gonna start dropping off. So maybe we need to push this out to a 12 up to a 16 week period, give them, start them at a higher caloric point um, and then slowly reduce them back from there or maybe even allowing a little bit of more flexibility, a little bit more freedom over the weekend um, and restricting a little bit more throughout the week. And there is one thing that I do wanna stress and that's that weight loss or, or fat loss is not linear and weight loss almost never equals fat loss. There's too many variables when it comes to weight loss. Um, there's too many fluctuations that can occur for too many different reasons. Um, so if we're simply using the scale to measure uh, if we're losing fat or not, it's not giving us a true representation of what's actually happening uh, happening on a fat loss level. Okay, so now onto our next point, guys. How, do, how does stress impact fat loss? So first off, let's start with types of stress. This could be financial stress, it could be relationship stress, it could be types of food that we're eating that's causing a stress within the body. Um, training, so training is definitely a stress. Dieting is a stress or extensive dieting is a stress. Um, feeling of isolation, feelings of anxiety, uh, lack of sleep, work, traffic, whatever it may be. These are all gonna be stresses that add up. So when we talk about stress, it's never just one stress that's gonna cause um, some sort of impact or a massive issue uh, with our body. It's, it's always gonna be the, the cumulative stress or the compounding stresses that add up and start causing chronic or, or, or issues with our stress. So one thing I do here is people say that I'm stressed and that's, that's why I can't lose weight, but it's, it's not due to the fact of stress leads to weight gain. Um, Stress can lead to inflammation and that can lead to retention of water, um, but it doesn't actually lead to any more gain in, in body fat. It's not, it's not how it works. Um, but how it does work is parts of the brain that are responsible for um, decision-making, motivation, reward, are all triggered by more palatable foods. Okay, so 
we're going to be craving these more palatable foods, even if even just the sight of them is going to trigger these parts of the brain. So we also have a decrease in the frontal region of the brain, which is responsible for strategic planning um, and emotional control. So not only is the reward center of our brain now desiring these types of food, but our actual self-control is, is, is now impacted. So we're, we're more likely to be reaching out for these foods, more likely to consume them when a, when a state of stress is present. And once we start giving into these foods and, and if it's starting to happen on a more regular basis, our body is going to become aware of this and it's going to start becoming more of a, a habitual thing. It's going to become more of a habit. As we start teaching our body, this is what we do when under stress, even the actions that we do. So under stress, it's probably more likely we're going to drive down the road, grab a tub of ice cream. So it's not only the action of eating the food, but it's the actions we take in order to get these foods. So this is why keeping our quality eating habits in place and keeping these systems in place that uh, keep us on track are so important during times of stress. So we're not reaching for these highly palatable foods. We're not causing a, a negative reaction to stress. Um, and we're able to maintain control during a stressful time. So along with this, we're wanting to implement some things that can help us kind of manage our stress. So things like breathing drills, uh, meditation, journaling, listening to a podcast or listening to music, going for a walk, uh, going for a drive, anything that's going to help us kind of switch off and bring our heart rate back down and gain it, give us a little bit more control over our thoughts and, and how we are feeling. So let's start with breathing techniques. So there's two that I like to use and one is box breathing. So that'll be inhaling for four seconds, holding that breath for four seconds, exhaling for four seconds and holding that exhale for four seconds and then trying to continue this for around five to ten minutes you can do this along with some meditation or along with listening to some music or whatever it might be um, you can do it before training before sleep at work wherever wherever you may be it's, it's very easy to do in any situation and try and control um, a stressful event or a reaction at that certain time Another I like to use is alternate nostril breathing. So that is blocking one nostril. Let's say you block the left nostril. You're going to inhale through the right nostril and then you're going to hold or block that right nostril and exhale through that left nostril. You will then inhale again through that same nostril, so through the left. Then you'll block the left and exhale through the right, inhale through the right, so on and so forth. And same thing, you can do this at any moment, any situation, um, do it along with meditation, along with listening to a podcast. Um, do it, doing this before bed and trying to bring the heart rate down before bed can have some massive benefits to your actual overall sleep quality and how you wake up and how you wake up feeling the next, the next morning. So another thing that we can do before bed is journaling. We can do it anytime throughout the day. If you prefer to do it in the morning, you can do it in the morning. But before bed kind of helps clear the mind of everything, everything that kind of just went on throughout that day. Um, and one I do recommend to a lot of my clients, especially those who are busy with work or got uh, a, lot, a lot of stress at work, um, is the mind dump journal. So this is where you write down everything that happened throughout the day, um, even things that cause you the most stress, and also 
things that you need to get done tomorrow. So a lot of people go to bed thinking about everything that they need to do tomorrow. So writing down a list of everything that you need to do uh, the next day, so that, that means it's now off the mind. Um, you can even put it in number order or prioritize each, each, um, each thing. And then when you wake up, you check back over this list and you can now have a bit more of an action plan how to go about your day rather than stressing about everything during your sleep and kind of affecting your sleep. Um, another form of, of journaling is you can do it in the morning of, you can write down what you're grateful, uh, what you're grateful for, um, how you're feeling, and just kind of give yourself a, a summary of the, of the day prior. Once again, this can help you give you a little bit of a positive focus or positive outlook on a day day just gone um, and it can also set you up for a little bit more of a positive outlook for the, the day ahead another thing that I recommend for my clients to do is to listen to a podcast so one that doesn't require you to think um, I find listening to music before going to bed is too stimulating for the, for the mind um, and it still allows you to kind of think too much so listen to a podcast uh, one that's more entertainment based um, and something you can really just focus in on the words, focusing on the conversation between whoever's on that podcast, which will allow you to kind of switch off, preferably doing this in a dark room. So there's no lights, there's no outside lights, there's no TV, um, even the LED lights from your phone charger or, or your TV are, are switched off or covered up. As any lights or if we're under a state of stress, so we've got an elevated heart rate before going to bed, it's going to inhibit the production of melatonin. So one of the roles of melatonin is to promote sleep. And one of the big, big things that come from uh, sleep deprivation, a lack of sleep or a lack of sleep quality, is the same effects as when we're under stress. And that's the effects on the, on the frontal lobe of the brain, um, which can inhibit our um, self-control and trigger the same feelings of need and, and desire for the highly pal palatable foods. And this is why uh, reducing our stress, improving our quality of our sleep, or even just increasing the hours of sleep is going to have such profound improvement on our fat loss or body composition goals. Uh, and it's not, as I said, going to directly impact, but indirectly it's going to have a massive benefit to what we're trying to achieve. On to our last topic for today, guys. Uh, metabolic adaptation or metabolic damage. So I find a lot of people use this term interchangeably. Uh, they are two different things. So metabolic damage does exist, but it's at very low instances. So metabolic damage is the belief that our, metab our metabolism is damaged from the process of constant dieting or over-exercising. Um, and it's kind of the reason why we are unable to lose weight or we're not seeing the change that we want. And this does exist, but it's at very low instances. So only, it's only really seen in those who have been under severe anorexia or severe starvation and not really seen in gen pop or at the levels that people were kind of were claiming. So this is one thing I used to believe, and that was that people were metabolically damaged. So they were at a point where they dieted so hard that their metabolism completely fucked and we now need to kind of reverse all this damage. But this was mainly due to being early within the space, uh, within the space of nutrition that is, and the coaches I was looking up to at the time or the people I was looking up to at that time. Um, 
I now don't believe in metabolic damage as much with um, with with the gen pop, obviously, uh, and it's more of a metabolic adaptation, um, or people just, as I said earlier, just simply aren't telling the truth. They're not re they're either underreporting or um, they're not being truthful with the calories that they say they are eating. So metabolic adaptation is a little bit different. Uh, it's basically where our metabolism, where our body is going to adapt to its current state. And that happens almost instantly as soon as we start dieting. So what happens when we diet or we start restricting calories um, is we see a decrease in our NEAT, which is our non-exercise activity thermogenesis, um, our thyroid hormone, which controls metabolism, um, our thermic effect in food, because we're going to be eating less food, that means we're going to be uh, consuming less foods that contain a higher thermic effect, uh, and also our activity levels go down as we're going to have less energy, therefore we are going to be doing less exercise. So every time that you diet or restrict calories, there's going to be metabolic adaptation present. It's just what happens. So. The ways to kind of offset this is to make sure you're having a lot more fiber in your diet, keeping the protein levels up, and it also keeping your activity levels as high as possible. So at times it's gonna be hard due to less energy. We may be feeling like shit some days, so you're gonna, you're gonna wanna pick your battles. Um, but it doesn't always have to be bashing yourself in the gym to keep these activity levels up. Uh, and maybe walking a little bit more, so taking a little bit more steps. Um, it might just be going lighter in, the, in, in your training. Uh, but increasing the volume, so increasing the amount of uh, reps or sets that you're doing, but sticking to the lower weight. Um, walking your dog more, swimming, whatever, whatever it may be to kind of keep those activity, activity levels up. But if we are dieting, there are a few things that we can implement or we can, we can do to kind of offset some of the effects of the metabolic adaptation. So the first one being a refeed. So a refeed is a small bump up in calories we bring them back up to maintenance level for two to three days, ideally in this uh, form of carbohydrates, um, with the goal of trying to get a little bit of an increase in our metabolic rate. The only thing is that once we bring our calories back after two to three days, that we're likely to see a decrease in the metabolic, metabolic rate again. Um, so that's kind of short-lived. So where I see a refeed day adding the most benefit is bumping up or replenishing our glycogen stores that have been lost through dieting. So glycogen stores are the stored fuel source within our muscle cell. Um, so replenishing this is gonna give us a little bit more energy throughout the day. Um, it's gonna give us some more energy for training. So any improvement that we've seen in terms of weight loss or fat loss is actually coming from uh, an increase or in improved performance in the gym and not actually coming from a small spark or increase in metabolic rate. Along with this, the two to three day refeed could give us a much, much needed mental break from the process of dieting. So let's say we've been dieting for six to eight weeks um, and it's starting to get tough now. The calories are coming down and it's starting to get a little bit harder. Two to three days off, uh, allowing us a little bit more flexibility, a little bit more freedom with what we're eating. Uh, could be that much needed break that we need in order to get us from week eight to 10. We may need to implement another refeed week 11 or 12, depending on how we are. Um, and that's gonna carry us again into the weeks 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, depending on how, how long we're actually dieting for. So what you're gonna notice is it's more so a mental break than it is a 
physical break that we're getting from this refeed. So another thing that we can implement during our diet um, to kind of offset any of the metabolic adaptation, and it's going to have a greater effect on that, and that is going to be a diet break. So a diet break is going to last anywhere from three days long to three weeks long, and this is going to be dependent on how the individual uh, responds to the diet break. So this is where we increase our calories back to maintenance. It doesn't have to be just through carbohydrates. It can be both. It can be any macronutrient you want as long as it's back to maintenance and calories. So as this diet break is a much more extended period of time when compared to the refeed, it's going to provide us with a much greater benefit to uh, reversing any of the adaptations that, we, that occur during the time of the caloric deficit or during our diet. And we're also going to see a pretty profound improvement in, our, in the mental side of things as well as we get a lot more time off here. We get a lot more time to kind of be a little bit more social, um, a little bit more flexible, a little bit more free with what we're eating. But it is important that we do remain within our maintenance calories as maintenance means we are going to maintain our current state. Anything over this is going to be considered a caloric surplus, which means that we are likely going to put on some weight or some body fat um, with any overfeeding that we do. So with these maintenance, these, these maintenance calories, they are based off our current state. They're not based off where we were prior to the diet. So these maintenance calories are going to be calculated off where we are currently. Um, so this may be only a two, three, four, five hundred increase from where we are right now. So it's definitely not a time to start including cheat meals, even though I hate the word cheat meals and we, don't, we shouldn't be including these anyway. We sh if we want to cheat, it should be in the form of a refeed. Um, but it's not a time to start splurging and start going wild because this is going to undo and then make it harder to work back off um, once we resume with our diet. So to summarise all that, guys, metabolic adaptation and metabolic damage do exist. Metabolic damage doesn't exist to the degree that we think it does and only in those who have, as I said, undergone some starvation or anorexia or whatever it may be. Uh, metabolic adaptation does exist and all of us go through it um, whenever we diet or whenever we enter a caloric restriction. So ideally, guys, whenever we finish our diet, so whether or not it's six weeks, eight weeks, 12 weeks, 16 weeks, whenever we finish our diet, we always want to come back to maintenance to give ourselves a break whether that's mentally, whether that's physically, um, we always want to bring ourselves back there, give ourselves a break uh, before jumping into our next diet. So that'll wrap us up for this week's episode. I hope you were able to take something away. We covered a few topics today. Um, if you were able to take something away, let me know. Send me a message on Instagram and, and let me know what I was able to help you with. Um, but if there's anything that I can, or anything extra I can help you with, send me a message anyway. I'd love to answer any questions that you have. On top of that, I want to leave you with one more thing this week, okay? So a lot of people get caught up in comparing, comparing themselves or comparing ourselves to somebody else. Uh, I'm a firm believer in everybody is capable of achieving a certain result, whether that's with their body, whether or not that's with business, with family. Um, everything is achievable for everybody. The only difference is the person that you're comparing yourself to has figured it out before you. It doesn't mean that you cannot figure it out, but they have figured it out before you. Have you ever wondered why a 15 or 16-year-old kid 
has or is able to create a multi-million dollar business and be successful within business, it's because they figured it out before you. It doesn't mean that you cannot do it. Same as those who have a better body or your goal body. It doesn't mean that you cannot achieve that result. It just means that they were able to implement the steps, the procedures, and the systems that were required to achieve that result at a sooner point in time than what you were. So I'll be, I'll be straight up here. Working, working for performance, working to improve my body, it's, fucking, it's, it's, basically, it's really easy task for me, okay? I'm not where I wanna be, but achieving what I have has been much easier than, let's say, the likes of business. Business is fucking foreign as shit for me. It's, it's actually really, really tough for me. Does it mean I'm gonna give up because I compare to those who have already figured it out? Fuck no. I only keep working until I do figure it out. It just means that those people that have it already worked out just did it before me. That's all it is. It doesn't mean that I cannot do it myself. So if you keep sitting back and if you, if you constantly are comparing and, and thinking that why has that person achieved what I'm wanting and, and I haven't or why can I not do what they are doing, you're just simply fucking wasting time. Because the moment you start, the sooner you're going to be to that goal or to that result. And there's going to be someone else looking at you thinking, why the fuck can that person achieve it and I cannot? So they're going to be you in the past. And you're going to be the one that's experienced the results, the success, and working your way towards the next goal.